I said, I'm Bob Durst. Are you with the police? Whatever it was that had happened to Kathy Durst, Robert Durst did it. So what did you do in the next few days? I panicked. She had signed up for how to get off the Jones course at Lenox Hill Hospital. Susie, Susie, it's Bobby. Pick up the phone. She says, poor Bobby. And your intent was to do what? Go to Susan's house. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Thursday, August 12th, Robert Durst took the stand for a third day of direct examination by Dick DeGarren. DeGarren set a measured and sometimes repetitive pace as he guided Durst through a series of questions about his actions following Kathy's 1982 disappearance and culminating in Durst's arrival at Susan Berman's house in December of 2000. In this episode, we'll present the highlights of his testimony, examine where his story has changed from previous statements he's made and testimony he's given, and on occasion, check his assertions against publicly available facts. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Throughout the day's testimony, Robert Durst, speaking in a quiet, hoarse monotone and a slow, consistent cadence, appeared to seek sympathy from the jury. In the morning, when DeGarren questioned him about his actions following Kathy's disappearance, Durst depicted himself as a concerned husband. Would you explain a little bit about what your thinking was about this magazine and taking it with you to the police station? I was hoping I wouldn't have to show it to anybody. I was hoping that the police would accept me reporting that Kathy Durst who's in her fourth year of medical school, is not going to medical school, has not come home, and has not contacted her immediate family. So by this time, were you worried? Yes, I was getting worried. Durst asserted that he at first believed Kathy was simply staying with her sister Mary Hughes or her friend Gilbert and Najami. And then, toward the end of the first week in February 1982, as he received calls from Kathy's medical school about her absence, he became concerned. However, there was a measure of incongruity between Durst's stated mindset at the time and the moments leading up to his arrival at the precinct. What did you do then? Drove to the precinct. 
which was about 10 or 12 blocks away. I could not park near the precinct because the cops, as usual, took up all the parking spaces. So I had to park about three blocks away. Okay, and then what did you do? I figured I'd take the dog for a walk, come back to the car, walk to the precinct. But while I was walking the dog, I suddenly found myself at the precinct. So I decided to go in and report Kathy missing. He then testified to meeting New York Police Detective Mike Strzok. Durst has, of course, admitted to lying to Strzok about speaking to Kathy on the phone the night of her disappearance, and has said he did so in order to show that she had made it back to their Riverside Drive apartment. Having recanted that statement, Durst, however, stuck by another assertion that he has offered, suggesting that Kathy returned to Manhattan on the night that she allegedly took the train in from South Salem. The conversation you're having with Detective Strzok, what else did he ask you about? He said, so let's assume she got to Grand Central Station. Do you know if she got to Riverside Drive? And I told him about how on Monday morning when I come in into the city on the kitchen table, there had been a bottle of Coca-Cola and an ashtray with a cigarette butt in it. And that had not been there when we left Friday night to go to South Salem. So that told me that Cassie had to have gotten there Sunday night and left out the Coca-Cola when she left Monday morning. He also testified that he invited New York State Police into his South Salem home without a warrant. So what time was it when you got to South Salem that evening, Friday evening? About nine. What happened next? When I got there, there was a car parked across the street from my house with two guys in it. So I went over to the car and I said, I'm Bob Durst. Are you with the police? And the guy said, yes. Did they have a search warrant? Not to my knowledge. What did you do? I said, do you want to come into the house? And they said, yes. And the three of us went over and unlocked the front door and went into the house. Now, had you, uh, had you been in the house uh, before, uh, you know, since you left that morning to go into Manhattan, had you been in the house at all? No. All right, so you and the troopers went into the house Friday evening at the same time? Yes. DeGuerin's aim seems to be to demonstrate to the jury that Durst was cooperative and had nothing to hide. It's worth noting that the encounter with New York State Police that Durst is describing here is nearly a week after Kathy's disappearance. Durst testified that he stayed in South Salem earlier in the week so that he could retrieve his dog, Igor, from the vet on Thursday. Back in May, the jury heard from Bill and Ruth Mayer, who lived in South Salem in a house across from Bob and Kathy. 
For two nights following Kathy's disappearance, Ruth Mayer testified that all the lights in the Durst house were off except for one. She said she saw a blue light coming from the basement window. Ruth Mayer was questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian. In the days or days following Kathy's disappearance, did you notice anything out of the ordinary at the Durst residence? Uh, yes, there was nobody home um, or there were no lights on except for a blue light in the basement window. Bill Mayer testified that Ruth told him about this sighting at the time. Did your wife, Ruth Mayer, did she ever mention to you that she had seen a blue light coming from the Durst basement on the night of January 31st, as well as the next day, February 1st? Yes, she did. Can you tell me, to the best of your memory, when did she tell you that? I would say she told me that almost immediately after she saw it. DeGaron asked Durst what happened next inside the house. Did they look around? They walked into the living room, and one sat on the couch and one sat on one of the chairs, and I walked around and turned on the lights, and then I walked into the living room where they were, and they asked me some questions. What kind of questions? Well, he wanted to know if Kathy could have been upset because of the lawyers. And I explained to him, them, that she had had lawyers for a year and a half and that there was nothing new. That if her lawyer knew of a problem, he would tell my lawyer. Durst isn't the only one who interacted with state police at the South Salem house. His housekeeper, Elizabeth Jones, took the stand back in June and explained that she was there alone one day when state troopers stopped by. Under questioning by Deputy DA John Lewin, Jones testified to showing the police several irregularities on the first floor of the house. How and when did you become aware that Kathy Durst had allegedly disappeared? I was at the house, Bob's house, and two officers came to the door. Can you describe what happened? Well, they held up the newspaper, and they asked me if I noticed anything out of place. And can you describe what you saw about the house at that time that was different than how it usually was? Um, there was something on the dishwasher. When you say something on the dishwasher? It looked like blood. I'm sorry? It looked like blood. And I want to ask you, is that something that um, appeared to you to be recent or fresh? Yes. Anything else that you saw? Um, yes. In the, in the dining room, uh, there was, I didn't know there was hidden panels above a closet. And I noticed fingerprints on them. And the panels were... And oh. the, these panels, did you know previous to that that they were there and what they were? No, I, did, I didn't know they were there. So in looking at them, you were able to see that there were hidden panels that you were unaware of because of how they were attached. They looked as if they'd been opened? Yes. Anything else you observed? 
I'm referring specifically to toilet paper. Yes, that was another time. I came in another day to clean, and the front hall had hundreds of rolls of toilet paper. Had you ever seen toilet paper no, like that no, before? No, no. And then the following week, it wasn't there. Later in Thursday's testimony, Durst discussed his statements to one of the New York State police officers. He characterized Kathy as being quote-unquote loaded on the night of Sunday, January 31st, when she returned from a quote-unquote party at her friend Gilberta Najami's house. Durst indicated that he believed Kathy drank heavily and used cocaine that night. However, in May, when Gilberta's sister Fadwa Najami took the stand, she testified that no one used cocaine that night and that referring to her family's Sunday night dinner as a party would be a gross mischaracterization. Najami was questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian. This was a family gathering? It was definitely a family gathering. What type of party? Would you call it a party? No. It's dinner. Family dinner. If someone were to say to you or ask you, was this a cocaine party or a party where cocaine was being used? What would your response be? I would laugh and say no, because my parents were there. Okay. And what about that in particular makes you want, you would laugh? Because we wouldn't do that. Nobody would do that in front of my parents. Okay. When referring to Kathy's alleged drug use, Durst expanded upon an assertion he made in his testimony the day before. Durst said that he disclosed to one of the state troopers who entered his home that around Thanksgiving 1981, Kathy had quietly begun a drug rehabilitation program at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. Did you talk about her condition when she came home uh, on Sunday? That is, you, you told the jury that in your thought she was loaded. Did you say anything to the uh, troopers about that? I told them that when I saw her Sunday, she had drank a lot. I think I also told them about her being in the drug rehabilitation program at Lenox Hill Hospital. All right. The day before, Durst said this about the rehab program. Uh, it's the end of 1981 going into 1982. Well, how aware were you of her schooling? I was not that aware of her schooling. And I knew that she had signed up for a how to get off the drugs course at Lenox Hill Hospital. Lenox Hill Hospital on the Upper East Side of New York, which is considered the most expensive zip code in the country. Let me stop you there. Uh, when did Kathy sign up for this uh, drug uh, course at uh, Around Thanksgiving of 1981. What, what was your understanding about what that program was about? It was an outpatient clinic, I guess. You went four or five days a week for three or four hours. They did not believe in cold turkey. Their theory was if their patients and decrease whatever it's doing that they don't want to do, and that's an accomplishment. Whether they were smoking cigarettes or shooting heroin, as long as the patient did less of it every week, 
they consider that a success. Did Kathy complete that course, if you know? I don't think she did, no. I sort of found out about it by accident. Because Kathy was on the phone talking to somebody else who was in the program. Curiously, this assertion by Durst neither appeared in the New York State Police notes nor in Detective Strzok's notes, nor in any other statements or testimony by Durst or anyone else. It appears to be completely unique to Durst's testimony in this trial. Moreover, our research indicates that Lenox Hill Hospital does not appear to have offered outpatient drug rehabilitation services in the early 1980s. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Another recurring subject of the day's testimony was Durst's relationship with Susan Berman. As DeGarren took Durst through the various eras of his life, he asked Durst about Susan, where she was living, how her career was progressing, in an apparent attempt to demonstrate that the two remained close friends throughout their lives. Durst testified to being keenly aware of Berman's financial hardships and to helping her out on multiple occasions. And she couldn't repay the mortgage. I offered to help her, but she did not want to keep the house. She felt the house was a jinx. When she bought the house, she was getting married to Mr. and she was pretty sure that Linda Holtz was going to be able to make a movie out of easy streets. During the time she was in the house, both those things He said that he even gave Susan a quote-unquote small amount to help fund the musical that Berman tried to mount in the early 1990s with her then-boyfriend, Paul Kaufman. Oh, by the way, did you invest in the musical, the failed musical? Small amount, yes. Uh, Well, small might be relative. How much did you invest? I gave him $25,000. Okay. Did you expect to get it back? No. Did you get it back? No. Did that matter to you? No. Later, Durst discussed the first of two checks for $25,000 that he sent Berman in 1999 and 2000. The next check in sequence is dated March the 3rd, and it's check number 645 to Susan Berman, $25,000. That's in March of 99. Did you, was there any idea in March of 99 that Janine Pirro was going to get involved in your case? Of course not. That's a full year and a half before you learned that Janine Pirro was reopening the case, correct? Yes. Why did you give Susan Berman 25000 in March of 99? In March of 99, Susan Berman must have asked for it. Do you know what her financial circumstances were then? Well, they were not good. 
Did, did you expect to get that back? No. And then in the fall of 2000, Durst learned of a development that deeply shook him. On October the 31st of 2000, did you get some startling news? Yeah, my sister told me. What did, what did you hear from your sister? My sister told me that my brother Douglas, who was running the family business then, had heard from the PR firm that the business used that they had heard from their friends in the media that uh, Janine Pirro, who at the time was the Westchester County District Attorney, was making a big political fuss about reopening the investigation into the missing person known as Cassie Durst. Almost uh, 18 years had passed since Kathy disappeared. When Kathy disappeared, you were not portrayed as a suspect in her disappearance in the media, were you? No. What had changed uh, with the way Janine Pirro was attacking this? She was saying that I did it, whatever it was that happened to Kathy Durst. Robert Durst did it. So what did you do in the next few days? I panicked. And I flew to Dallas, Texas, where I still had the apartment. I drove to Galveston, Texas, disguised myself as a woman, rented a cheap apartment, and planned on hiding out there. Durst's testimony about his decision to hide out in Galveston disguised as a mute woman appears to be part of a theme in the defense team's narrative established by Dick DeGuerin in his opening statement. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He's run away all his life. Durst alluded to this theme when he testified to running from his house and hiding in neighbors' homes after his mother died when he was seven years old. Toward the end of the day, DeGuerin asked Bob about another frequent escape destination from Durst's past, the towns of Trinidad and Eureka in Northern California. Durst testified about the time he spent in Northern California and the friends he made there. As the minutes of the day were winding down, DeGuerin began to take Durst through questions about his fateful trip to Trinidad in December of 2000. Durst has stipulated that he flew from New York to San Francisco, then from San Francisco to Eureka, then drove to Trinidad on December 19th. Susan Berman was murdered four days later on December 23rd, and Durst has now, after 20 years of denying it, stipulated that he was in Berman's home with her dead body and wrote a note to the Beverly Hills police alerting them to the cadaver. Durst's story that connects these events is, of course, one of the most anticipated aspects of this trial. He began laying out the story by testifying that he had plans to spend Christmas with Susan Berman in Los Angeles. 
So why didn't Durst simply fly into Los Angeles to see Susan Berman? Durst has previously said that he flew out to Northern California to sell his house, and possibly his car, and generally tie up his affairs. Here's what Durst told Lewin in his 2015 interview in a New Orleans jail. I'm just trying to figure out, because Susan was telling people near the time she died that she was upset with you because she couldn't find you. We know that you flew out here to see her. Flew out here. Flew out to Los Angeles. Um, to, I'm sorry, San Francisco on December 19th, right? We have the, you made the call for the plane. Right, you picked, you, you went to San, you went to uh, Eureka, you went to the Ford dealership, right? You picked up the car. And then the next day, I don't know if you know this, you know, you made phone calls for Garbageville. So where were you going? Why were you down there? I remember what exactly I was doing in Garberville, and I've tried to remember, and I really don't know. You weren't going to San Francisco, though, right? Because you had just come from San Francisco the day before, so that doesn't make sense. I wasn't going to San Francisco. I think I was wrapping up my affairs. I had sold the house. Right. I still had an office. Right. I still had a car. And I think I went out there to um, take my stuff out of the office. It was rented and to sell the car. But, but it, you agree it was very strange for you to be going out here. When you were asked about it, you said you were out here for a couple of weeks. But yeah, that's what I thought. Right, but you were only out there for four days. Four days. And, and you agree you didn't take four-day trips to San Francisco back then. Not from New York. Right. No. Yeah. So, so as you sit here, it's fair to say you really can't explain it. I can't explain it. In the narrative that Durst presented on Thursday, it appears that his reason for the trip was to assist an ill friend, Diane Boucher, in getting to and from the hospital. As we've reported, Durst purchased a house from Boucher in the small town of Trinidad in 1995. The two became close, often seeing movies together and attending local events. They remained friends until sometime after the nationwide manhunt for Durst in late 2001. Prior to her death in 2002, Boucher told a local news outlet that Durst was, quote, a notorious liar and extremely dangerous, end quote. So you stayed with Diane Boucher that night. That was the 19th? Correct. And then what did you do? Well, we got up early in the morning. And I drove her to Humboldt County Hospital and left her there. I then went to Bank of America and withdrew $9,000 so that I would have cash to buy marijuana for my friend in Barbersville. Daguerrein then asked Durst why he chose to drive down to Los Angeles after leaving Garbersville. Why not just fly from San Francisco to LA? Well, we intended to drive from Los Angeles up to Big Sur. I thought about flying and renting a car, and I decided not to. Okay. Durst then testified to having a medical issue that caused him to have to pull over and lie down. Tell us about that drive. How far did you get? Well, I have to back up a little bit. 
1998, I started having strange, strong headaches. I went to see the doctor I used in Humboldt County Hospital, and he sent me to a neurologist. All right, so you, you digressed. On the drive from San Francisco toward Los Angeles on Highway 5, tell us what happened. I got to close to Bakersfield. I started getting the symptoms of my migraine headache. And one of the things that the doctor had prescribed for me was called a Percocet. What is a Percocet? It is an opiate, a very strong opiate that I don't think they use anymore. Did you have any with you? Yes, I always carried them. So what I was happened? told that once I took a pill, I should lie down and do nothing. Durst described checking into a hotel where he paid in cash and calling Susan to update her. And you called Susan from the room? Yes. Where did you call her? At 1527 Benedict Canyon. Tell the jury what happened. Well, Susan monitors her calls. She puts the answering machine up on the highest volume. So when somebody calls, she waits for the person to say, it's so-and-so. And then if she wants to talk to them, she talks to them. Or she calls them back in the future, or whatever it is she wants to do. So I heard the phone rang, the answering machine picked up. And I said, Susie, Susie, it's Bobby. Pick up the phone. And she's... Did she pick up the phone? Yeah. What did you tell her? She said, Bobby, are you here? And I said, no, I'm having one of my episodes. I had to stop. I'm in Bakersfield. She says, poor Bobby. Do you want me to come get you? And I said, no, I should be mostly better by the morning. Durst testified that the next morning he drove towards Susan. From Morrow Canyon, I was able to get on to Sunset. And from Sunset, I was able to get on Benedict Canyon. And your intent was to do what? To go to Susan's house. At this point, DeGarren paused. Well, I think this is a good time to quit. In two more minutes. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to pick up Monday. And so, Dick DeGarren left us with a cliffhanger. Judge Wyndham adjourned the trial until Monday, leaving the jury with a cinematic image of Robert Durst turning his car off Sunset Boulevard onto Benedict Canyon Drive towards Susan Berman's home. Joining us now is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Charlie, day three of Bob on the stand, what did you make of it? I have to confess, I'm still somewhat in 
awe of Bob's ability to lay out this free-flowing narrative with lots of detail. I mean, we've learned about Broadway musicals, uh, uh, film treatments, and the two kinds of criminal defense lawyers that there are. All that detail lends a patina of credibility. The thing is that Bob has left a long trail of statements, and there are things that he said in court this week that contradict his sworn testimony in Galveston 19 years ago, his interviews with the producers of The Jinx, or even with some of his comments in um, his prison phone calls. He's going to have a lot to contend with on Cross. A couple of questions come to mind. First of all, had we ever heard mention of Kathy being in a rehab program at Lenox Hill Hospital before the last couple of days? No, that is completely new. And I've got to believe very unlikely it would have shown up in the police reports, either with Detective Strzok's log or maybe the state police. But it's a, a, a new piece of information that may or may not be accurate, but I'm just flabbergasted that it suddenly comes up now. We also did a little bit of research, and Lenox Hill Hospital in the early 80s did not have a drug rehab program. Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital did, and in the 2000s, Lenox Hill took them over and took over that program. Brittany, what what struck you about day three of Bob's testimony? Yeah, there were a lot of moments, as Charlie said, that he launched into these stories that I think I'm going back to my original theory that his strategy here is to humanize himself. Talking about being a caretaker for Diane Boucher and the fact that he was the person she called to bring her to the hospital, he makes himself out to be... Um, Nurse Watcher. <laughs> Yes, I was going to say um, Flora's a nightingale, but yeah, Nurse Ratchet works too. And everything he did for Susan, donating to the musical, getting her furniture, maybe he thinks that enough of those little anecdotes and the jury will, will get this picture of a nice, well-meaning guy. Charlie, isn't DeGarren under some obligation to explain the discrepancies between Bob's testimony in this trial and Bob's testimony in Galveston? Specifically, he denied seeing Susan in December of 2000 in the Galveston trial. Don't you think that DeGarren is under some obligation to reconcile the discrepancies in those testimonies? Well, he's not supposed to, no lawyer is supposed to suborn perjury. And it's interesting, a couple weeks ago, uh, when they were going to start talking about Galveston, uh, Mr. DeGarren stood up and said, well, that was testimony 18 years ago. It's not necessarily testimony today. It was sworn testimony in Galveston. We're supposed to ignore that? One other thing that struck me about the testimony on Thursday was when Bob persisted in describing Kathy as having been inebriated, intoxicated when she arrived home at their place in South Salem after having spent time at the Najami home. And I vividly recall Fadwa Najami describing the gathering at the Najami home 
as a family dinner with their parents present, and there was no cocaine anywhere in sight. And Kathy, while agitated about her marriage and about her fear of her husband, was not in any way intoxicated to Fadwa's perception. Right. She said it was laughable that there would be cocaine there. She spent about an hour on the stand just talking about how angry her father was that they didn't start eating at exactly five o'clock. You know, you could kind of picture the the mood that night. Yeah, it's very much two different versions of Rashomon about uh, what that party was all about. And one other thing that really struck me was that DeGuerin asked Bob why he told Detective Michael Strzok he had a drink with the mayors and that he made the phone call to Kathy at Riverside Drive. And Bob very straightforwardly answered because I wanted him to leave me alone and I thought those answers would leave him alone, but they were not true. And yet left unexplained is why we should believe anything else that he said that night because the same could apply to every one of those other statements that he made. Absolutely. I was struck by, in addition to what Bob said to detectives, just the way he acted on his way to report Kathy missing. He reiterated a number of times that he was worried about Kathy. You know, his friends thought that maybe she was just playing a game, but he was really concerned. But then when he goes to report her missing, he's far more concerned about not being able to park close to the precinct than having any urgency to get in and talk to a detective about this. I thought it was wild. Yes. No, you're right. In addition, I don't know who thought that Kathy was playing a game. Uh, certainly her sister, her brother were, were very alarmed and wanted to know where she was, as did uh, Gilberta. Uh, she was supposed to have dinner, I believe, Monday night with uh, Gilberta. And when she didn't show up, Gilberta started raising the alarm. And uh, I, I think that, or at least in the original telling, it, it appeared that Bob went to the police station only after uh, Gilberta was raising enough uh, noise ab about missing Kathy that um, Bob felt compelled to take action. So let's finish our conversation for the day talking about the big cliffhanger that Dick DeGuerin left at the end of Thursday. Charlie, tell me about the atmosphere in the courtroom as we got to the end of the day. We're all leaning forward because we're, we're finally getting to it, you know, and Bob, Bob had had a headache, you know, a migraine and stopped overnight in Bakersfield. Then he's back in the car and heading to Susan's house in Los Angeles. Dick suddenly broke off questioning, but I guess he wanted to leave us with bated breath. So, Brittany, any final thoughts on the first three days of Robert Durst's testimony in the trial? As we predicted, he not only is surviving uh, to testify, but he seems to be thriving on the attention that he's getting on the stand. And I'm absolutely on the edge of my seat waiting for Monday. Well, again, thanks, guys. Really appreciate your being here. We'll look forward to next week to the conclusion of Robert Durst's direct testimony. And we're going to bring you a new episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst for every day that Robert Durst testifies. may take a day or two for us to put it together after that testimony, but we will report on each day. So thanks again to everyone for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.